Our Old Testament scripture reading today is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And now our New Testament lesson is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And the sermon will focus on verses 4 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray for the Lord to illuminate the preaching of his word. Father, we thank you for this gift of your word. And Father, we do know that indeed you are one. We pray that you would bless us with insight and wisdom as to how to live according to this important truth. Help us to live as one. And so, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we may be attentive to your word and that we may be changed by it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, last Sunday morning, we talked all about how the church is called by God to live in unity. That was why we read verses 1 through 3. It gives the context for this morning's text. The church is to live in unity by humility and gentleness putting others first, caring for one another, even being the servant of others, with patience, bearing with one another, to be long-suffering, to be patient, even with those who are difficult. 
and to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, to outwardly live the Spirit's unity by being peaceable with one another, and to remember that peace is more than an absence of conflict, but rather peace refers to seeking one another's health and to seek wholeness and love in all of our relationships. Well, that's a lofty calling. In fact, you on your own have no ability to find, to live out according to this unity. You know that out in the world, there is not much unity to be found among those who do not know Christ. And even for the people of God, unity has been a tall task as sin continues its war, even in the regenerate heart. You see in the Old Testament that many times unity was threatened by idolatry. You see that some of the New Testament letters, such as Galatians, were written in response to disunity in the church. You yourself have almost certainly experienced church conflict perhaps even been the source of church conflict. But there's good news. You, the people of God, God's church, you have a source of unity that is not your own. You are not the source of Christian unity. For you are made one by the unity of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so what unites you is so much bigger, so much greater, so much more perfect, so much more wonderful than anything that could possibly come in between you. For it is the truths of the gospel that make Christian unity possible. And we see this in today's passage in three divisions. First, in verse 4, that the one spirit makes you into one body. Second, in verse 5, that you share one faith in one Lord Jesus. And third, in verse 6, that you all share one God as your Father. And so we first turn to the work of the Spirit, making you into one body, as it says, there is one body and one spirit. You are the body of Christ. You are one body of Christ. And you are put together by the one Holy Spirit. Just as your body cannot be divided without harm, so it is with the body of Christ. The body of Christ cannot be divided without harm. And yet... Because you partake of one spirit, there is always an essential unity in you, the body of Christ. For you all together partake of one spirit. The spirit dwells in every one of you who trusts in Christ. But the spirit is one. The spirit is always one. The spirit can only ever be one. The Holy Spirit is never divided up into portions among you, 
God is one. He cannot be divided up. And so the Spirit in each of you can never be divided against each other, can never be opposed to each other. And so when you do not live in unity with your brothers and sisters, this is not who you are as the church. This is sin in you, making war against the Spirit. But it is never going to be able to divide the Spirit that unites you. So that when you do live in unity, when you live in outward unity, when you live according to that inward unity of the Spirit, this is the Holy Spirit himself overcoming sin in you and working through you according to his own nature. So you all share in one source of spiritual life. There is a strong power at work in you all of you, living in new resurrection life. And since you all partake of the one Spirit, the one Spirit who is indivisible, none of you have any more or less of the Spirit than any other. Every one of you partakes fully of the one Spirit who indwells all of you and makes you one body, the body of Christ, for he has called you to the one hope that belongs to your call. You all share in the same hope, which is life in the new creation. All of you who put your trust in Christ are on your way to one destination, and you only receive the new creation all together. As you see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that those who are dead and those who are alive when Christ returns will all together receive the kingdom of heaven so that you will all be with the Lord. All believers will be changed together when Christ returns. And everything that divides you will pass away at that time. So if you have the Holy Spirit, if you have this one hope of the new creation now, why bother with these divisions even in this life? Now you have been called to this hope. None of you thought up this hope on your own. None of you earned it. None of you can take any credit for it. There's no virtue in any one of you that led to your being called to this hope. You don't each have a different personal credit score. You get better terms for your inheritance in the new creation. None of you has anything greater than your brothers and sisters. So why get uppity with each other? Why think yourself better than one another? Indeed, this hope is even given equally to Jew and Gentile. The two people groups in the ancient world who hated each other, who despised each other. They had worldly reasons to hate each other, and yet there is one hope 
for both Jew and Gentile. Christ took down the dividing wall of hostility. There is no worldly enmity that can possibly divide you from your brother and sister in Christ. In fact, your worst enemy in this world may come to Christ and become your brother or sister. And examples abound in history of this exact thing happening. For the very author of this letter, Paul, was an enemy of Christ, was an enemy of the apostles, and yet he came to with your brothers and sisters in Christ from across the world, even in countries that may be at war with the United States. Nevertheless, you have brothers and sisters everywhere in the world, and you have more in common with them than you do with your own countrymen here. For you all in the church share in one hope, and partake of one Holy Spirit as the down payment of this hope for the new creation. So you are to live in unity, for the Spirit has made you one body. Second, we turn to verse 5. For you share one faith in one Lord. You all serve one Lord, that is, Jesus Christ. And so we read earlier from Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Those words were foundational to the people of ancient Israel. And so unity is a result of faithfulness. For when all of the people of Israel faithfully served God, the tribes stood together. Yet idolatry and strife, disunity, and God's discipline went hand in hand. Consider the end of Solomon's reign and how the tribes were divided and two separate nations came out of one. Why? Because the king's heart was divided. And so, as judgment, God divided the tribes from each other. And so it was when the Lord was the God of the nation of Israel. But now, today, the Lord does not only belong to Israel, for all nations have a common Lord in Jesus Jesus is gathering all peoples to himself through the proclamation of the gospel. And so today, national distinctions have no place in the church. I look around today, and I see people from every part of the globe. And people whose ancestry comes from far away, even if you were born here. National distinctions have no place in the church all people 
who put their trust in Christ are equal members, no matter where you come from or what you've done. It says in Zechariah 14 that on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. And so there are many expressions, many visible expressions of the unity that the church has in one Lord. And the international unity of the church is one such visible expression. There are many temptations in this world to serve yourself and to serve the variety of idols. But when you serve your common Lord Jesus, you will find unity with one another. For you have one faith and one baptism. You are all in the church on the same basis. You profess faith in the one Lord and one baptism in him. When you join the visible church, there is only one standard for membership, and that is a credible profession of faith in your Lord Jesus Christ. You don't get brownie points for giving an extra good or an especially eloquent profession of faith. If you join the new members class starting next week, and I encourage you to, you will learn that you don't have to be especially good with words. You don't have to be an expert in theology or anything else, but you must have faith in Christ. That's the only standard. And if you're smarter, you don't get admitted to a higher degree of membership. But if your profession of faith is sincere, remember that this means you do not trust in yourself. You do not trust in your gifts. You do not trust in your theological acumen, but you trust in the Lord. You trust in Christ. And you acknowledge that you have no good of your own. Rather, all the good that you do have is found in Him. And you belong here on the basis of that confession. You have nothing to claim except the cross of Christ. And so in the body of faith, in the body of Christ, there is no room for one-upmanship. For you have nothing to offer that is better than anybody else. And you all equally have access to the one Father. And so if you are here today, and you recognize that you have nothing of your own to offer, throw yourself on Christ and his mercy. He will heal you from all your sins. He will make you strong in the Spirit. He will give you new life. And he will make you a part of his body, the church. And just as there is one faith and one confession, there is also only one baptism that seals this faith. Baptism is the sign and seal of faith and a marker of membership in the visible church. 
As it says in 1 Corinthians 12, that in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Every one of you who has been baptized into Christ, you had the same baptism. Whether it was by immersion or pouring or sprinkling, that doesn't matter. The spiritual significance of it all is the same. Union with Christ, being buried with him in baptism so that you may walk in newness of life. Regardless of the mode, the rite of baptism is the same seal of faith. And it's a simple ceremony. It's an important one. It's a meaningful one. But the act itself is quite simple. So it doesn't matter how much money you have, how important you are at work, even if you were a public official, you would have the same baptism. Water is just water. There aren't better or worse waters. It's not like rich people get baptized with champagne and middle-class people with LaCroix and poor people with regular water. That'd be ridiculous because you have one baptism. Baptism points to the one reality in which all share. All of you who are in Christ and members of this church have been baptized with the same baptism as a sign and seal of the one faith that you have in our one Lord. And third, in verse 6, we read that you have one God and Father of all. As it says in Malachi 2, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? You all have the same God, and he is all of your Father. He is the Father of every person in the church without discrimination. He is the Father of Jew and Gentile alike, of English person, American person, Iranian person, Chinese person. He is the one God and Father of all who believe in him. And so we don't even have a, 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 a situation in the church where my dad could beat up your dad, for we have one Father. And there is not even a multiplicity of gods that compete with one another. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8, although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This isn't the ancient world where people worshipped different gods in the hope that the one God, their God, would be able to get one over against the other person's God. And we don't live like those out in the world today where we each serve our own masters, whether worldly success or wealth or comfort, and hope that we're able to get what we want over against our neighbor. 
No, you all share in one God, who is your Father, who looks out for you, who cares for you, who provides everything that you need. And he is your Father, not because there's anything good in you, but because he graciously adopts you, because Christ is his own Son. And by faith, you are united to the Son. Christ has earned your adoption by the Father for you. So there is nothing good in you that has caused God to, unite, to, to make you his son or daughter. But by union with Christ, you are now a part of God's family. God told Abraham in Genesis 15 or 17, I forget which, God told Abraham to count the stars. For that is how many his offspring would be. That is how many are in the family of God. And by faith in Christ, you are one of these children, one of these offspring. Why? Because Christ is the offspring of Eve, and he crushed the serpent's head. And by faith, you are united to him. And so when you have God over you as Father, he is over all and through all and in all for your benefit. For God completely fills you, his church, with his presence. Every one of you who trusts in Christ have the presence of God filling you. There is no nook or cranny of you that is unfilled. You are God's temple. And you are filled just as the cloud of his glory filled the tabernacle and the temple of the Old Testament. So in this passage, you see how the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit himself is the basis for unity in the visible church. And because God is one, there is no disunity in the invisible church. For by faith in Christ, you are made into a body that cannot be divided. And so what do we do about disunity in the visible church? If there is unity in the invisible church, why is there a need to exhort one another to maintain this unity, as Paul wrote in verse 3. Well, it is true that the church as an organization has some need to make distinctions. It would be very hard to conduct an orderly church service if there were big disagreements, such as whether we should speak in tongues or not as part of the service. But remember this, God can and does work through disagreement. 
Attend a session meeting sometime, and you'll see what I mean. But God does his work. God works within the church through the process of debate and discussion. You can see this at work in Acts chapter 15. There were some who believed that Gentiles needed to be circumcised to come to Christ. And there were those who did not believe so. Nevertheless, they met together and they debated and discussed. And what came out of that was the first ecumenical council, the Council of Jerusalem. And God saw to it that his gospel was kept pure. And that Gentiles were not obligated to be circumcised, to come to faith in Christ. And so even even in the case where we meet in separate local churches, remember that there always remains an essential unity among all who are in Christ. And so both here at Westminster and among your brothers and sisters at other churches, you do have an obligation to fight against disunity tooth and nail. Give other denominations of believers all the credit that you can. Welcome them as true brothers and sisters in Christ. Always remember the unassailable unity of the invisible church. And remember that one day when Christ returns, he will put a complete end to all unity, all disunity in the visible church. You will all be one. You all will see God, your Father, face to face. God will see to it that his people is one. And so even now, you are called to unity. As Steve Baugh wrote in his commentary, this is not an offhand or insignificant part of Christian life, but is at its very center. This second half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is filled with exhortations about how to live the Christian life. And there's a reason why Paul begins by exhorting you to unity, because that is at the very center of what it means to live a life faithful to God. And so remember always that the things that unite you are so much greater than anything that could divide you. For you share in one spirit, and he has called you and made you into one body. You share in one Lord, in whom you have all put your faith and shared in one baptism as a seal. You share one God and Father, and his presence utterly fills you. So remember, God is one. The church does not create unity, but lives out the unity of God. And so remember, none of you have anything good in yourself that gives you any status over against one another. For all of you, Share in the same triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
This is the foundation of Paul's exhortations. And so you are called to walk in the unity of your triune God. Let us pray. Father, we praise you that you are indeed one and that you have made your church into one body and that you have given us one spirit to partake of and one Savior to whom we entrust ourselves for your mercy. We pray that you would continue to work in us this unity. We pray that all believers would live according to this principle of love and unity with one another. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us to walk according to this unity. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.